gold has been trapped now for um, 18 months. And so and it still remains trapped, but we're getting really close. And so what I said was what was going to release it, if you will, in this three-year correction. Well, hello there, my friends. Chris Marcus here with you for Arcadia Economics and excited to have a guest back on the show that we talked with a couple of times last year, a prolific historian and student of the gold and silver markets, and that is Don Durrett of goldstockdata.com. And we actually just had a really fun conversation about some of the things that going on in the gold and silver markets even before we hit the record button. So glad we're started and great to have you on in here today, Don. It's Nice to catch up with you again. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Chris. You know, thanks for having me back. Yeah, I brought uh, three charts with me today that are really interesting. Uh, gold traded almost below 1900 today. 1901 was the spot close. It hasn't traded below 1900 since March 13th. Um, I think we're. Uh, this is the last correction. I think it's begun. I think uh, in the next 90 days we're going to find a bottom here. Yeah, especially with some of the data that's come out on the COT report as of last week, we, we've seen a lot of the spec funds uh, getting rid of their long positions and certainly a lot to suggest we may have seen the brunt of the sell-off. Although perhaps to start, you were giving me an overview of how you see things going in the next year. Obviously, sentiment in gold and silver, not too strong right now in the mining stocks almost as as low as it's been in a couple of years and perhaps we could start there on where things stand now and what you see in the broader view of uh, you can start with gold and then touch on silver yeah sure um just a quick overview where my head's at so we've been in a three-year correction it's really interesting it started in august of 2020. So here we are in August 2023. So we're at the three-year correction. And it looks like gold is trying to finally, and uh, I'll show you those charts, are trying to finally get a, get a um, breakout. Um, find, this is like, we've never had, we haven't had the capitulation in this. So the markets have been in, correct, in, in correction now since 21. So we went all through 22 and then 22, maybe it was early 22, we, we basically started breaking down. Um, get the exact exact time. Yeah, um, bring up the S&P. Let's see when the S&P, um, when it hit, hit, hit its high, 48. Well, maybe that was October. Um, so in January of 2022, I basically late January, early February, I came to the conclusion that gold was in a bad, in a big, in a, in a, had a problem because the markets weren't rolling over. And so if the markets weren't going to roll over, gold was trapped. And so gold has been trapped now for um, 18 months. And so, and it still remains trapped, but we're getting really close. And so what I said was what was going to release it, if you will, in this three-year correction would be the stock market rolling over and capitulating. And so it hasn't capitulated. I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen sure. and show you, we'll start with the S&P and I'll, and I'll show you what I mean. So, yeah, so here was the top. It looks like it was right around, right at the end of 2022 when we, the S&P, at 48.18. It was 40, a little over 4,800. You mean beginning of 22? Right, the beginning, yes. The beginning of 22, right the end of 21. Um, and I thought it was all the way back to 21. And so then we started doing this, this, this bear market began in 22, so early 22. Um, and it, it basically crashed all of, all the way down and touched the the 200 week moving average this is this yeah 200 week moving average and that was in October of last year and that's when we started this run this 8 month run that we've been on um 2023 that's 2022 yeah so of October of last year so now we've been on this on this on this run and a lot of people thought 
you know, this was going to this this last these last months here have been a reignition of this bull market in the market in, in the stock market. And I don't think it is. I, I think that I don't expect, you know, maybe we, we the high was forty six hundred. I think that's probably going to be the high. If it's not the high, we might go back and retest it one more time. We're, we're going to know by the end of the, this month. If, if we don't get back, you know, say above 4,500 or start, you know, then I don't think we're going to see 4,600 this year. And September is going to be this, this big, big selling, if you will. So here we are. It looks like we're we're in this correction, and this could be the beginning of the of the recession, and this could be the begin, basically the the capitulation selling that I'm expecting. So if we look at this green line, this 200 week moving average, you'll see that you know we touched it back in 2019, and then we bounced, and then and then in COVID, and then the eight March April when COVID hit. We basically broke down, but it was a false breakout. And then we then it really went on that big run um, from 2020 all the way to the end of 21 uh, to 4,800. And now we touched it again. Um, and it was another false breakout, but we haven't had any capitulation selling. So the capitulation selling almost occurred when we went to 3,500, but it didn't break down, it bounced. So we didn't, we've never had really capitulation selling in this big, as a matter of fact, we haven't had a big volume, high volume day through this whole correction in the market. And so now once we get below 4,200, I think that is when the fear trade in gold is going to kick in. It's going to start, but it'll be, it, and gold has the potential to get a bid somewhere between 4,200 and 3,800. And so the key level here is going to be that green line. Well, they're all kind of key. I think 4,200 and 4,000 are going to be key. Each level we go below those, the fear trade is going, potentially going to you know kick in a gear because people are going to start to get nervous. And, and as they get nervous, they're going to want to buy gold. So gold has the potential to get a bid. And so then you get a decoupling where gold's going up and the markets are going down and gold is basically hanging in there. And I think the key level is that green line, which is right around 3,900. So once it gets to 3,800, this is the S&P, by the way, the 3,800 or 3,700, those two levels to me are the really, really important levels for gold because that is when gold needs to get a bid. If gold doesn't get a bid, and when I say a bid, I mean it's basically trending up and it's not no longer trending down. So it's currently at 1901, and I'm praying that 1800 holds. And so when gold gets down here, 4200, 4000, 3900, I need gold to basically be getting a you know holding 1800, and we're going to know at 38 or 37 if it holds. Either gold's going to break down really hard and it's going to be brutal for like PM miners, or it's going to bounce and decouple. So, so that's the S&P. Now, if we look at, I want to look at the HUI, then we'll look at gold. So the H, this I, is the uh, ask a question before you get to the HUI, if we go back to sure. S&P for a second. Sure. One thing I'm wondering, obviously, we talk a lot about in the metals is that we're getting close to the end of the interest rate hikes. And I could certainly see when there's finally a pause there let alone when we start getting rate cuts, which perhaps outside of bank, more banking issues, which certainly is a possibility, but outside of that, right. not seeing rate cuts uh, probably until 2024. But if we get a pause in the Fed policy, I guess the thing that concerns me uh, from that stock market perspective is that you, you wonder if that will be a green light for the equities to take off again. How do you factor that in if we do get the Fed finally pausing, let's say they come in September and say they're pausing, done. Yeah, pausing is not going to help the market. They'll have to cut to help the market. And like you said, no cuts this year. The only way you're going to get a, get a cut this year is if the market goes below, say, 3,500 and the Fed gets really nervous about, you know, recession and they want to nip that in the bud and not allow the market to melt down. So the only way you're going to get a cut, and again, a pause isn't going to help. We're at five and a half right now. We have high rates. Pause doesn't help. 
Um, even if they don't raise in September, they don't raise in October, and kind of we get an official pause, that's not going to help. People are going to be screaming for cuts, and you're not going to get a cut until 3,500, I don't think. Um, they don't want to cut. Uh, they want their tools back. They only have two tools. Tool number one is the lower rates to zero, ability to lower rates to zero to basically, you know, prevent a meltdown in the economy. And then tool number two is the ability to print as much money as they, they need to print to prevent a meltdown in the economy. Their number one agenda is not, so they're supposed to have a two-pronged, um, you know, policy, the Fed. Number one is full employment. Number two is price stability or lack of lack of inflation. But that's not their number one agenda. Their number one agenda is economic stability, preventing the economy from melting down. That's number one. And in order to prevent the economy from melting down, they need they need their two tools. And that's why they're fighting inflation today. They're fighting inflation because if they can get inflation back under control, they have their tools back. That's why they want they want those tools back. It's not about fighting inflation more than it is about the tools. So that's, that's that. And, and so since they want those tools back, they're not going to cut in, cut interest rates early unless they have to. And so have to is basically, in my opinion, 3,500 or lower. That, that answers your question? Yep. Okay, great. So this is this chart is beautiful for if you're a mining investor, a gold mining investor, a silver mining investor. So this is this is the HUI over a monthly period. And it, it basically starts with that black line is, is 225. I consider the HUI, this is what I use to determine when I basically buy stock, my entry price, when I buy. So I consider 250 on the HUI to be what I call the neutral level. So I'm okay buying, you know, around 250. I don't like to buy above 250. And between 250 and 225, I, I don't really like to buy, but I'll buy stocks that are really cheap. But once you go below 225, I call that the buy zone. And we went into the buy zone today and I actually bought three stocks. I bought um, stocks I already own, but um, I wanted to lower my cost basis because I, I think they're just oversold. And those were Avino. Uh, Silvercrest and Hummingbird. I just think those stocks are all, you know, 10 bagger plus, you know, and I just, I, I wanted to add shares because they're just sold off and they're all producers. And so I just like the risk reward. So once we get in this buy zone, it's like, I got to, you know, I got to do something here. So now, now that we're in this buy zone, I'm actually going to buy to the bottom. Now, where is the bottom going to be? So now if we go back to 2013, this is when the market broke down. And you can see that when the market broke down, if you look at these big red candles, look where it stopped. The last red candle to the bottom was basically right at 225. And then it hugged 225 for a year. <laughs> and, then it, and then it made a little break and it broke down with these two big red candles here saying, okay, 225 is not going to hold. Broke down and then it then it, and then. Some people said, okay, that's I'm gonna buy there at 160. And then it went went down, went further, it went all the way down to 100. So it went from 225, which everybody thought was a bottom, all the way down to 100 in 2016, which was kind of in crazy, crazy land. But that was your low. That was that was that was when you wanted to buy. So you basically wanted to be buying, you could buy this entire um channel, you know, below 225. It, it, it depends on what stocks you're buying, of course, but looking for cheap stocks. Then after it hit this bottom in, in 2015, it was actually 2015. Then it broke, it started, it started, it broke out. It actually made a run. You see these three candles. It took three, well, four candles to go from 115, let's say, all the way to 225. It made quite a run. That's how explosive these miners can be. This thing can go up 100 points in three months with no problem. And I think it will this time. I think it'll go from 225 to 325 in three months when it does break out. It's going to do one of these numbers. Okay, so it tried to break out. Well, look where it went. It went up to the 200-week moving average, and it immediately hit a wall and bounced back down. And went. look what it did. It went under the 225 level. 
So we broke it. We tried to break out. It couldn't. Came back down to this important, what I call the byline, and got below 225. And then it stayed there for look how many years. So this 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 red candle right here, when look where it's, it was at, it actually opened on the 200 week, went back down under it, and then stayed in this channel for two years, which is kind of crazy. And then it finally broke out when uh, COVID hit in the summer of 220. And we broke out, we got it with this big, huge. And this is the one thing where you can really tell these important levels is because when they do break above them, you know, you get these big candles. So we get this massive green candle. Um, and I think this is April, uh, April of 20, uh, right after COVID hit, it could be May. And April, May, June, July, it looks like it's April. Um, so then it basically made this big run all the way up to 360 and it couldn't hold and it broke down and we basically kind of got stuck in this choppy land. And you, you didn't really want to be buying in here. It was you wanted to wait and see what happened because gold was trapped. And then we went we went back into this channel. So you had a chance to buy some stocks here and then we broke out. And I haven't I haven't been buying any stocks. So once we got above this 225 line, I haven't been buying. I've been waiting to get back in the channel and we're in the channel here. So if you look at this, we've had higher lows. Look at this beautiful um, support line. Look at all these touches. So it, this support line should hold right around 195, 200. We might go a little bit below it. Maybe we go down to 190 and it's a false breakdown. But I don't think we go any lower than 190 here. So buy to the bottom. So we're at 218 right now. Basically, we're looking at about a 10% sell-off. And this is where the 1800 is so important. So 1800 and 200. So $1,800 gold and 200 on the HUI basically coincide together. That's why I think it's going to hold. They're both of the. So look at all this support on the HUI. And now, and one thing I want to show you is that I think this is going to happen over the next 90 days. We're going to get a bottom. And then once we get above 225, I think we're going to go to 325 fairly quickly. I'm thinking three months is something, you know, we're there. And then once we get above 300 on the HUI, it's basically off to the races time. Then it's going to go all, then over the next two years, it should go to a thousand. So this 10-year consolidation, I think, is going to end in the next 90 days. Okay, so now let me show you the gold chart. This is my last chart. And this one, is what one, I mean. Uh, one quick question on uh, the previous chart. Is it that 320 level? That's where you expect, finally, we see some more mainstream, wider fund participation joining in and really driving things higher? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so that, so yeah, so we break above the 360 level. So yeah, 320, 330, that's when your institutional money jumps in. And then you get above this 360 level and it's basically blue sky. And so that's when you're off to the races. And the, here's your 200 week moving average at 300. So you get to 320 and yeah, you're going to get a lot of people jumping on board. Absolutely. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so, so here's this gold chart. Remember I said, you know, they coincide. So you look at this support line, which is just beautiful. Now we look at this, this, this channel right here. So this one goes all the way back to 2011. And so gold basically stayed down here. Um, this was actually, you know, this chat, this, there's, this is a channel as well. I could draw a line here and we had this big channel, but this, this is where gold, the reason why I drew it here is because this green candle right here, and this was in December, I think, of 2020. This is when this is when gold broke out. Right in here, this was December 19, December of 2019. So the end of 2019. So this is 20, 2019. This is 2021. So right here in the middle, this this chant, this green right here, these two green candles at $1,400 gold. This is when we broke out of this six, seven year channel, this seven year basing. And then we, this is the breakout. And so the big breakout was this green candle right here, which was right at $1,600. 
And then the other one is you have this 200 week moving average, which is above 1600. So I, I and then you have this bottom. So we have the breakout and then we have back the retest 1615. So this 1600 level is, you know, really is support. But I don't think we're going down there. But this is the level. This is what scares me. What scares me is that 1800 doesn't hold. And then we go back down and retest 1600. Or maybe we go back down to 17 or 1650. I don't want to go. I do not want to go back in this channel. And so we see this 200 week moving average, which is currently right at um, 1800. So that's support. And then here, here, if you look left, this is where this is where it really coincides with the 200 on the HUI. Is these these touches over here on the left? So here is the here was this breakout in 2011 above 1800, and it couldn't hold. It got a little bit above 1800, and in the following month it opened right above 1800, and then it crashed. And then it closed all the way at 1600. So in that month, it went down $200. And once it once it did that, once it went down $200, it was game over. There was nothing it could do to hold up. It went up and it retested 1800 four times. You see this little in this wick. Right. So you have a wick here, you have a wick here, you have a wick here, and you wick here. It went back and retested 1800 four times. Well, that is really good for us. So what it did was it put in support. And so now this should hold because of all that support. And look at all these monthly touches that we had over the last three years. A lot of touches. So 1800 should hold. And if 1800 holds, then the HUI should hold 195-200. So I'm bullish because I think that if 1800 holds, I've been saying this, I've tweeted this at least 20 times. I've been, I said, if 1800 holds this year on gold, we go to a new high. And then next year is like, you know, the best year that we've had in a long time for gold. Next year we go, you know, 23, 2500 gold next year, if 1800 holds here. So this all goes back to, um, you know, basically the, the economic fundamentals, if you will. So before we get off the charts, do you have any questions on this HUI? No, that makes sense. Gold, and, on the gold chart? Uh, no, I mean, that makes sense. And certainly when you mix in the, the economic backdrop behind that, touching on what you said with a, a breakdown in the S&P, and obviously we've seen data slowing. I, I know uh, I saw on your Twitter feed that you're not a big fan of Janet Yellen's economic assessment that <laughs> everything is rosy out there, but um, certainly makes sense what you're saying there, add in the fact. And if you care to comment on, we talked a little bit about that BRICS announcement that is coming up next week. And um, so certainly a lot of factors suggesting that even with the recent sell-off that could be near the bottom. And did, did you have anything yeah. you'd like to add on the, the BRICS there? Let's start with Yellen and then we'll go to the BRICS. So... The, the two main groups that are basically pounding the table that the economy is strong and ignoring kind of the underlying kind of data, and we'll get to some of that, is really only coming from two groups, right? It's coming from the administration, and it's in their interest, right? It's in their interest to remain bullish and kind of spin the economy. You know, everything's good, you know. And then the other group is Wall Street. And it's in their interest for things to remain good. But I follow the 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 basically the brilliant macro minds who basically manage money and who make money if you know if they're right or not, you know, the hedge funds, the, the guys that the two and twenty guys who need to be right. Um and those guys, most of them are 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 bearish. You know, Michael Burry had a tweet. There was a tweet out yesterday. Burry, the 13F came out, you know, and he was, you know, short the market. And, and, and that guy's pretty bright, right? So he's looking at all the data and he's basically going, I don't, I don't trust this thing at all, right? Jeremy Grantham, another guy who I think is very bright, he said that the only thing that he really wants to own right now are commodities and gold. 
doesn't want to own any other stocks except for commodities and gold. And he says that this is the, the, the biggest bubble that he's ever seen. I mean, going back to 1929, because, it's, you know, he calls it the everything bubble. And, and he's basically saying that, you know, there's a train wreck ahead of us. And, you know, I, I, I couldn't agree you know, more with him. And if you listen to him and analyze it, you know, he does it very methodically, right? He looks at all the data points. And really where it, the problem with the economy, the reason why it's not as robust as basically, you know, these two groups that I said are, are, are basically kind of pounding the table on, is that the economy has been basically... Um, lacking strength, if you will, since the dot-com bubble popped in 2000. So, I mean, if you go back to 2000, we basically had a recession from 2000 until 9-11 hit the year later. And then that recession lingered for two more years until Bernanke basically um, injected enough money to get the economy, took rates really down, created that bubble in the stock market, created the bubble in housing. And so we basically started this whole idea of basically bubbles, you know, inject money, lower rates. It was basically a false economy. We didn't let the economy, we didn't let the economy die on its own, grow on its own. Its own. We basically destroyed the free market after 9-11. And then artificial low rates. And then we had, then he created that bubble in the housing. And he also created a bubble in financials and so you had this, basically, that we had the great financial recession in 2007, 8, 9. And that was from a bubble, the bubble popping. And then Bernanke basically lowered rates again. And that's when we, we started MMT. So MMT is, you know, nobody's really kind of defined it per se, but it, it's this, this idea with, with, with Japan Back in 1990, what they did, we had to put a name to it. So Japan had this massive bubble, and instead of letting their letting companies go bankrupt, they bailed them out, and then they lowered rates to zero, and they injected money, and they and they started accumulating debt. So and that's what we're doing now. So they basically took rates to zero. They even took them negative. They took their ten-year and they pegged it at zero. I mean, a ten-year at zero, right? So at zero rates. And then they expanded their money supply crazy, which China and then China emulated them in the 2000. So they expanded their money supply. Right now, their their debt to GDP is like 200%. It's over 200%. Before that happened, I think it was zero. I don't think they had any debt in 1980. And so they'd use a combination. And then and then simultaneous to that, their their central bank bailed out companies, bailed out banks, bailed out bonds. It was bailout after bailout, low interest rates. And simultaneous to that, throughout the 90s, they really didn't have a harsh recession. They basically had a little bit of growth here, a little, you know, they didn't have a harsh recession throughout the 90s. It basically stopped recessions, but it also stopped growth. But it was a, it was basically a manipulated economy. But where the MMT came in, it was this idea that if you have a money printer, that debt doesn't matter. So Japan said, hell, debt doesn't matter. We can have as much debt as we want. We just print it. So they went into this idea that debt doesn't matter. You know, if, if we need money, we print it. We need money, we print it. You know, whenever, whenever they needed money, they printed it. So 2000, the first decade of this century, the U.S. basically copied Japan. And China was doing it as well. They're printing money like crazy. And Europe as well. Europe kind of came, they followed us. But we started using this idea, which I think is MMT, is, is a combination. It's basically three planks. Plank number one is low interest rates. Plank number two is injecting money, you know, basically, you know, printing printing money whenever you need it. You know, and, and then plank number three is don't worry about debt. Debt is a secondary thing. <laughs> and you notice since we started doing that, nobody even talked on Washington on Washington. In Washington, the politicians, nobody even mentioned trillion dollar deficits, two trillion dollar deficits. Going all the way back to 2001, you won't see a single anybody talking about cutting debt, cutting the deficit until inflation popped up in 2020, 
2022, excuse me. Once inflation came up, the Republicans said, oh no, we got a debt problem. But until inflation popped up, nobody said a word for you know 20 years. That that's kind of MMT in action. And so MMT destroys the free market, which we've done. We've destroyed our free market. This is the reason why the economy is in such dire straits right now. Because when you destroy the market, there's no price discovery. Because when you have artificial low rates, how do you know what a company's worth? We have corporations that are losing money. I was reading where um forget it is like I don't want to I don't want to throw a number out there. I'm gonna be wrong. But a percentage, a large percentage of small businesses that are trading on the Russell are basically losing money right now. I thought it was in the 30, about 30%, maybe it's less than that. But a big chunk of them right now are losing money. And, and the reason why it suddenly became an issue is because previously they're borrowing money at zero. So it didn't matter. They're basically zombie companies. And now they're going, uh-oh, we're losing money. We can't, we can't roll it. We can't borrow money here. It's at 5%. So 5% is a big problem. And so it's what's happened. The thing to really look at it, and this is what Grantham goes over, is what's happened over the last 20 years. What he says, two of the big factors that he says that are kind of damaged the economy, if you will. Um, number one is this idea that companies are not investing for CapEx. Instead, they're buying back their stock. And if you buy back your stock, it makes it look everything's rosy because your stock market keeps going higher and you're not spending money to do CapEx. So it looks like you're more profitable. It basically puts a false picture of you know, the economy. And so he says all these buybacks that have been happening, happening are not healthy. That's number one. Number two is the boomers have been retiring left and right. And as the boomers retire, that's less money, you know, their, their income. So, you know, the average boomer is probably making 100 grand a year. He retires and now he's just getting Social Security and he's not getting as much income. So his income just gets cut in half. So his spending gets cut in half. That's been happening left and right. And now all the boomers are retiring and nobody's replacing them. So you have less, these high paying jobs are just going away because the, the corporations, when somebody, a VP, let's say a VP is making 200 grand a year and he retires, they, br they bring somebody to replace them. They only give him 125, right? right? They, and they, they don't replace, because he's been there for 30 years. So he's basically making top dollar. But the new guy that comes in or the new gal that comes in, they don't get top dollar. So it, it hurts the economy. So the demographics are hurting the economy. And then, of course, inflation. Inflation is, is a killer because at least 30% right now of Americans, because of inflation, because of the Pershing power got kind of zapped, cannot, their lifestyle got damaged and they're living paycheck to paycheck and they can't buy everything they need. They're hurting. And so how is the economy solid when you got 30% of Americans who are hurting? Whereas, you know, before inflation popped up, they were doing okay. Now they're not doing okay. Now they basically, you know, they can't afford their phone. They can't afford their cable. They can't afford their rent. What do they pay for? There's a lot of people out there right now who can't pay their bills because of this inflationary surge. They, they just don't have the buying power, haven't got the, you know, the, the income. And so this is the lag effect. So now you get the lag effect that is starting to happen. And the lag effect is these people that I'm talking about, how they, you know, they have to stop, you know, we're going to have, you know, this is, I, I'll give you an example is the banks, the banks, they're the ones that are really going to take it on the chops. So you have commercial real estate. So that those are non-recourse loans. So people are just beginning when they have to roll over the loan, they're basically going to say, Here, here's the building, here's the keys. Right. So banks are going to lose a ton of money on commercial real estate. Then you got mortgage delinquencies. And so that's what I was saying. These consumers, they can't afford their mortgages anymore because of the inflationary pressure. When you when you take the whole household budget together and they add it all up, it's like it doesn't work. And so we have to basically go, we have to rent something cheaper. So you're going to have mortgage delinquencies. Then you have credit card delinquencies. Those are going to pick up. Then you have autos. 
auto delinquencies, those are going to pick up. So all these are going to pick up that are going to create, this is the lag effect that's going to happen. And like I said, Janet's not talking about it and Wall Street's not talking about it. The lag effect hasn't happened yet. It's coming where all these people can't afford this, you know, these payments. The payments aren't going down. And I keep hearing people saying that, you know, we're going to have deflation. Well, deflation just means that prices are rising slower than they were before. It doesn't mean that prices have dropped. So all these increases in prices are going to stay high. They're not going down. Your grocery bill is not going down. Your utility bill is not going down. They're all, you know, your insurance bill is not going down. Once they go up, they stay up, right? The only thing that tends to go up and down is oil, of course. And, and then, that's back rising again, which is going to hurt right. the inflation yeah. numbers and, and, going forward. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the other one is like housing because lumber prices will go down. And then housing can go up and down sometimes on commodity prices. But, you know, I'm really only touching the surface here on, on the kind of damage that's been done to the economy. I mean, if we look at COVID, if we look at how small business was damaged by COVID, now they have to deal with inflation to get back on their feet. That's not easy to do. So a lot of these small businesses have been hanging, hanging on, and they're not going to be able to hang on much longer. And so that's a problem because of the COVID damage. Um, then you have Ukraine. Ukraine is probably the biggest event of everything I've said for the last five minutes. Ukraine is probably the number one issue that's going to ha harm the U.S. economy. And the reason why it's going to harm the U.S. economy is because the whole global dynamic um, trade dynamic has been upset. Apple cart has been upset. The relationships that the U.S. had with China has been damaged. China now is becoming, they were already our economic enemy. Now they're taking it to the next level with this BRICS. And we're getting to the BRICS. That's what we're getting to. Um, that's where I'll go after, after talking about Ukraine. So Ukraine basically damaged the whole energy system. Before, you know, Russia was sending their oil through pipelines to Europe. Now they can't. Europe won't buy their oil, so now they have to truck it. I mean, not try. They have to use it, um, ships, and which costs more money and takes more time. Other places in the world, and so the supply channels are all basically getting all messed up. Then you have, when you have higher energy prices in Europe, that that impacts U.S. corporations. They don't. They make U.S. corporations get forty percent of the profits overseas. So now Europe in a recession, going to stay in a recession for the next two years because of high energy prices. Last winter, they basically had a lot of inventory. This winter, they won't. Natural gas prices are going to go, are going to start trending up higher in Europe. Europe, Europe is basically going to be an economic mess. That's not going to get fixed because high energy prices are not going to go back down. So Germany, which is the engine of Europe, their economy has been damaged because of this Ukraine war, and it's not going to go back. And then the supply channels have all been damaged. And then China, I mean, they're not going to, the prices, like I said, prices don't go back down. So the stuff we buy from China is now going to cost more money. And now we get to the BRICS. Okay, so um, I read today that the BRICS said that they have, I think, 23 countries have applied. And those 23 countries are all probably going to be accepted. So before you had five, and now we're going to go to 28. Those 28 countries are all going to de-dollarize to a certain extent. We don't know that we don't know how much they're going to de-dollarize, but to a certain extent, because they're going to be they all put it this way: Russia and China have taken the lead on this, and they want to de-dollarize. So they're going to put pressure on these other countries to de-dollarize. I saw today on Twitter a little podcast. Somebody said that. Uh, UAE was going to sell oil to India in rupees, never been done before. Before it was always done in dollars. So all these countries are de-dollarizing. You know, it's one of those ones, slow at first and then all at once kind of thing. So this is going to put downward pressure on the dollar. And I think what's going to happen, and let's go to the BRICS. So I think the BRICS are going to announce something at this conference. I don't know what, but they're going to either say, I think one of two things. One, they're going to say, we're working on a new currency. You know, and, and number two, and we and, and they're basically going to say, 
but we don't know what it's we don't we have no idea what it's going to be we're we're just talking we're talking about it and the other one they're going to they'll be more optimistic and they'll basically say it's going to happen it's just a matter of when you know so there's going to be there kind of a kind of a um, a bullish kind of announcement or a bearish announcement but i think we get an announcement one way or the other and that announcement should should put a floor under gold because if they do a new currency, I guarantee you it's going to have some type of gold backing. We don't know how much, but some type. And that's going to put a floor under gold, I think, at $1,800. I'm hoping. I'm, you know, Maybe I'm talking my book and I'm praying here. Um, but if gold holds $1,800, I think we get to you know, an all-time high you know, either this year or next year, and then we, we take off to the races. Yeah, and I think that's a reasonable assessment of the BRICS meeting as well, where I tend to get the feeling they're not going to come out and say we're launching the gold-backed currency. Uh, we've had a couple of BRICS officials say that they're not doing that yet, although when you look at some of the things Russia has said publicly over the last year, indicating that there is a, a move in progress to de-dollarize in some form and Hopefully we'll get a little more clarity on that in the next week. Um, so certainly create does create quite a backdrop for gold based on that and all the other things that you mentioned here. And Don, of course, I couldn't let you go without uh, touching on silver a little bit. And I know you've written and uh, spoken about in some of your interviews that you expect gold really to be the main driver and that it's silver that will be following along for the ride. And perhaps you could touch on how you see silver performing obviously with the advantage of silver being quite a small market. So when we do get significant inflows from a mainstream perspective, that's really when we could see a move that is along the lines of what many silver investors have been looking for. So anything you could share there would be great to hear. Yeah, great. All right. So this, this will be the last one. But before I get to the gold and silver, I, I want to say a little bit more about the BRICS currency sure. and, and the reason why I think it's going to happen. I don't think, first of all, I think China and Russia are kind of in an agreement that they want it. And I think they both want it for kind of the similar reasons. Um, Russia wants it because I don't think they want to trade in rubles because I don't think countries really, you know, it, I don't think it really is in their interest to kind of force rubles on people like Europe, for instance. You know, Europe doesn't want these rubles. And I think they want to kind of move away from doing international trade in rubles. Right. It, it makes a lot more, I think it works more for them to have this BRICS currency to be able to, to trade in. Um, and then I, it's the same thing for China. So China, I don't think, China has actually stated that they do not want the Yuan to be the, the, to be the international reserve currency. They don't want countries holding Yuans on their balance sheet as a reserve. Because they see they see the U.S. as basically being trapped by being the reserve currency, and we are, and that's a whole different discussion. But I think the U.S. is in a in a bad. It's not. It's actually it's 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 somewhat good to, to have the reserve currency, but when it goes south, it's bad. So the U.S. is going to have a really hard time when we lose that currency, um, lose that reserve status. So China always thinks long term, and they're like, no, we don't want the yuan. So I don't think that China and Russia want to do international trade in their currency and they don't want to do it in the dollar. And so that's why I think they will create a new currency within the next 12 months. Okay, so now let's talk about gold and silver. So I always call gold uh, big brother and silver little sis. Sometimes I call gold the big dog. But I, I think, and the reason why I call it a big brother and little sis is because I think I see a silver as being more feminine. You, we just don't understand silver. She's just wild, right? <laughs> so she has to be feminine. So I call her right. little sis. But gold is, you know, this massive market. Um, it's about 13, 14 trillion of total value and about 4 trillion just in the bars alone. So, you know, silver is just, you know, is, is a tiny market on a, on a dollar basis, especially when we look at above ground inventory, like how much silver is there available to buy today 
versus how much gold is there available to buy today. It's it's unbelievable. The discrepancy is just stunning. I'll give you an example. So back when Sprott created their PSLV ETF, when they raised their money to they you know they got their money and they went to buy the silver, they couldn't they didn't they they couldn't find enough silver. They had to wait. It took them, I believe, at least three months extra, three to six months, to finally fill the order. And and the final the final silver that finally came in was all had the same year. It was the current year. In other words, it came out of the ground. They ordered it, but there was no inventory. They couldn't find any. This is I don't know three to five years ago, and it's gotten worse now. And so back then, when they started PSLV, there was not enough inventory, thousand ounce bar inventory, at that time. And I think it was ninety million ounces. How much they tried to buy. It wasn't that much inventory above ground. And so thousand ounce bars, I think, is the real key here for silver. And so I really feel that once silver, once gold's gonna leave, gold's you know, the you know, the big big brother's gonna leave, little sister's gonna come chasing after him. So once gold gets above 2100 and breaks out to an all-time high, that's when silver will come racing, you know, outperform gold two to one. But but once gold goes to, to 2100, silver gets to 30 very, very quickly. It'll come running. And then it'll outperform, it'll outperform gold, of course, running from, you know, today it's at 22 all the way to 30. So then from 30 to 50, silver will be, you know. But what, what I said to you earlier is that silver is, it, this isn't about silver. This is all about gold, the debt bubble, and the bond market, and somewhat indirectly stocks. So the big money will only buy gold when they have to, as a hedge to protect themselves. And so they'll start buying gold, you know, once it gets above 2100, 2200. And when they start buying it, then they create this, basically this wave of buying by the retail crowd for silver because they can't afford gold. People see that gold's going up, but they can't afford gold, so they buy silver. And that's when kind of your fear trade kicks in. So the fear trade starts in gold and it starts in gold because this big money is afraid of their assets. So if they're going to protect their assets, they can't buy silver because silver isn't big enough. They got to buy, they got to buy gold. Gold's what, you know, is a big, huge market where they can protect themselves with gold. You know, you can buy a billion dollars worth of, with gold. You can't really buy a billion dollars worth of silver, not physical. And so gold starts his fear trade and silver just comes along for the ride. It, it, it has nothing to do with silver. It's just coming along for the ride. And it's that retail money and retail trade that comes in and they start buying the physical. And there's not enough silver physical to go around for both your fabricators who need about 70%. Once the investors want more than 30 you have to get above, they start soaking up that above ground inventory and it starts, and before you know it, it's gone. You know, it's that PSLV type of situation. The above ground inventory is gone. And once it's gone, you're all those, all the 10 ounce and hundred ounce bars above ground, you won't be able to find them. Your local silver store, no way they're going to have any. And the big um, websites aren't going to have any. The only place you'll have a chance to get it is probably on eBay and you have to pay a huge premium. And so that's what I think is going to happen. So I, you're going to get a shortage in silver. It was my call. Sometime between $35 and $50 silver, I'm expecting a shortage. Um, the only thing that could really prevent that from happening, in my opinion, is that you get a global recession and there just isn't a lot of demand for fabrication. So let's say that the fabricators only need 60%. So we get a one, it's basically a 1 billion ounce supply and then, you know, the fabricators only need 60%. So 400 million ounces is enough to cover, you know, the retail crowd. I mean, that's a possibility, but I'm still expecting an, uh, a shortage. And so that's and, it. And even that possibility is somewhat offset by the, the degree to which a government doesn't go into recession. And with the green mandate and, I mean, some of the, the solar numbers that and the projections that continue to come out of China certainly seems to make it hard to 
imagine that we'll really have a, a big glut there, but certainly something we'll be keeping an eye on. I know that you'll be keeping an eye on and Don can't thank you enough for everything you laid out there today. Quite well done, sir. And perhaps uh, just before we wrap up, you could let folks know, obviously you have goldstockdata.com in the background there, but I'll pull up the site and maybe you can just tell people uh, what you do over there. Okay, so yeah, it's, it's for people that want to invest in mining stocks. So the database has about 900 PM miners. Um, and I analyze all the stocks. So you get basically a lot of data for PM miners. You get my analysis, plus you get, you know, you know, their balance sheet, how much, how many ounces they have in the ground and you know their cost. It's 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 basically a fantastic tool for anybody that invests in mining stocks. Highly, highly recommended if you own any, if you own any mining stocks, um, definitely check it out. Well, and you certainly certainly do a lot of great work with the mining stocks. Obviously, your columns on Seeking Alpha as well. And perhaps uh, also one other thing I'd like to mention, oh, yeah. how to invest yeah. in gold and silver and touch on that. For a yeah, if, if you own any PM miners, you want to read my book. It's like a textbook. And I, I do, you know, it's basically... I show you how to value these miners. And then, and when I say value, I'm not talking about uh, so much about um, the doing any type of formulas, but all the, all of the various data points, the complexity, understanding what to look for in a miner, if you will. It's um, it's yeah. You can see there that 125 ratings, people like it. It's, it's a really good book. And then, yeah. Also follow me on Twitter. If you want uh, Don Dredd at Twitter. Well, we will have the links to all those in the description field below. And Don, great to catch up with you as always. And uh, we'll have to do this again soon. And certainly will be an interesting second half of the year with a lot of these things coming to a head. And just appreciate you laying everything out here. And uh, thanks again for making some time. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. It was a good talk.